So the uh, story is told that after St. Augustine, the famous 5th century Bishop of Hippo, finished his theological book called On the Trinity, that he was walking along the Mediterranean Sea along the coast of North, North Africa where he saw a young boy playing in the sand. And you can all picture what happens next. He saw this young boy who was doing what young kids do. He was digging a hole in the sand on the seashore there and then taking his little bucket and running over to the Mediterranean Sea, filling it up with water and then pouring it into the hole. And as Augustine observed all of this, he said to the boy, why are you doing that? To which the boy replied with all seriousness, I'm pouring the Mediterranean Sea into the hole. Augustine looked at the boy and said, My dear boy, what an impossible thing you are trying to do. The sea is far too vast and your hole is far too small. And he walked away. And, and, and as he continued in his walk and he was pondering that scene, it hit him that what he had just been trying to do with the Trinity, writing his book on the Trinity, was just like that little boy. He was trying to write on a subject that was far too vast and his mind was far too small. Uh, folks, the reason I tell you that story is because we've been in a series here at your church on our statement of faith. We're just walking line by line through our statement of faith, taking a look at what they say and then flushing it out biblically for our lives. And today we get to this idea of the Trinity and I got to tell you, all week I have felt like Augustine and that little boy. I mean, we're going to try to fill our minds today with the vast sea of God's eternal nature, and I want to promise you all right up front that some of it won't get in, a lot of it's going to seep out, and we certainly won't be able to fit the Mediterranean Sea of who God is into the whole of our little minds. And yet that's what we have to do today as we wrestle with his word. I like how Reinhold Niebuhr said it years ago. He said, when the finite looks upon the infinite, he gets dizzy. And in a very real sense today, some of us are going to get dizzy as we try to understand this thing called the Trinity of God. But as I'm going to show you today, it's how God has revealed himself. It's who he is. And so try to understand it. We must. We must wrestle with what the scriptures tell us about God. And in a very real sense, try to fit the Mediterranean into a little hole. And so we want to talk about the Trinity today. And to help us to do this, I want to share with you just two things. Two timeless truths that the Bible makes clear about the nature of God and how he works in our lives. Two things that the Bible tells us about who God is and how his, he functions in our lives today. And the first thing that we're going to spend most of our time on here is, is going to propel us into the vast deep end of the Mediterranean. And it's this, look up here on the screen, and that is that God is one, but he has his existence in himself in three persons. It's called the Trinity, and it's core to who God is. That the Bible tells us that God is one, but has existence in himself in three distinct persons. Now, we've been singing all morning about the Trinity. I've been throwing this word around Trinity for five minutes during my introduction here. It's about time that we define it. And so B.B. Warfield was a renowned professor of theology at Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century, and he gives us a very clear and workable definition of the Trinity. Look up here on the screen. He says, when we have said these three things, that there is one God, that Father, Son, and Spirit is each God, and that Father, Son, and Spirit are also distinct persons, we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. So that's the Trinity. One God, 
three distinct persons, but each person is fully and completely God. And as I'm going to show you in a minute here, this is how God presents himself, as one being three distinct persons, with each person being completely God. And so if you've been with us in this series, you know that we're asking many of you, if you desire to, to read along in this series through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a volume of systematic theology written by our own Wayne Grudem, who's a professor here at Phoenix Seminary. And if you read the chapter for this week, you know that what Grudem does is he actually puts the Trinity in outline form in three statements. Look up here on the screen. I found this helpful. He says that the Trinity is affirming three biblical statements. God is three persons, that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. That's the Trinity. Take one of them away, you don't have the Trinity. The Trinity is God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God, but there is only one God. And I know how some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking like I was when I first became a Christian 30 years ago and was trying to wrestle with this stuff. I thought, well, that's all doublespeak. It's a contradiction in terms. You can't say that there is one being that exists in three different persons. That's, that's something our minds can't even comprehend. And though I'm going to show you in just a few minutes here that this is not a contradiction, it's not even irrational, I would call it super rational, but not irrational, the reality is this is how God has revealed himself, this is who the Bible affirms he is, and as we're going to see, it has profound implications for our lives today. And now, before we get to looking at a few passages from the Bible on all of this, I want us to hear from Dr. Grudem himself on this subject. As you might remember, I spent a few hours with Wayne in January before a camera, just quizzing him on our statement of faith, walking through it line by line, asking him to clarify for us what this all means. And so I want you to look up here on the screen and listen to his response when I asked him to clarify for us what we mean by the Trinity. So once we've established the whole idea of the truth flows from the Bible, that the Bible is inerrant and the final authority uh, about all of truth in life, including obviously our truth about God, we come to the Trinity. The idea that God has declared himself as a triune God, one God in three persons. And so, Wayne, could you help us understand a little bit about the Trinity? How, how can there be one God in three persons? How, how do we understand that? Nobody can understand it. Hmm. Uh, we can guard against mistakes and we can understand a little bit about it but when we affirm that <clears throat> God is, is three persons but one being yeah. um, it's something unlike anything we have ever known uh, now I, I have three sons uh, Elliot, Oliver and Alexander I understand the idea of three different persons because they are three distinct persons they were just home at Christmas <laughs> um, but if you tell me that you know someone who is three distinct persons but one being, mm. wait a minute, those three sons are three different beings. They're not one being. Right. But how can there be one being? Well, someone might say, well, one being but having different parts. But no, God is not made up of parts. The Father is the whole being of God. Mm. And the Son is the whole being of God. And the Spirit is the whole being of God. They are one being, not, and, and they don't have any distinctives or differences in their attributes. So the Father is omniscient, 
The Son is omniscient, the Spirit is omniscient. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all omnipotent, eternal, um, omnipresent, um, and every other attribute, infinitely wise and holy and just and merciful. Now, this is very important, folks, that, that you lock in to what Wayne Grudem is suggesting here. I don't know if you caught it in his words, but he used the word being. God is one being, but he is three persons. And each person is 100% God, having all the attributes, as he says, and perfections of God. As we're going to see in a few minutes here, we're not saying by the Trinity that there's one-third spirit, one-third father, and one-third son. We're not saying that. We're saying 100% son, 100% father, 100% spirit. We're not even saying that God manifests himself simply as father, son, and spirit, as if they're kind of seemingly that way. No, we're affirming three things here. We're saying that God and who he is is one being in three persons, and each of these three persons are 100% and fully God. Now, some of you might be thinking, where do we get that? I mean, is that just 2,000 years of people thinking about God? It's not. We get this from the Bible and how the Bible presents who God is to us. And so what I want to do now for just a few minutes is walk you through the biblical evidence, and you'll see very clearly that this is what the Bible teaches. And I don't do this very often, but I'm actually going to whip through a bunch of scriptures that are going to whiz by some of you, but I'm doing this for a purpose to show us the strength of the biblical evidence here. And if you miss some of these scriptures, then I encourage you to go back to our, our website and see, look at the video again or get a CD of this or email my secretary for the sermon notes. There's plenty of ways to get this, but try to follow along here because it's important that you see what the Bible says. Now, obviously the starting point is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that God is one God. I call it Theology 101. Very important to see. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8 4 says the same thing. It says we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And then James 2.19 couldn't be more clear when it says you believe that God is one and you do well. And so over and over again, that's just a sampling there, the Bible affirms to us that there is one God and it is God. Everything else is false. Now, with that understanding, however, the Bible then goes on to describe the Father and describe the Son and to describe the Spirit. And when it does so... It describes them as this one God. And so with this idea of one God, of the Father, the Bible says that he is God. Uh, Jesus referred to God the Father in John 6, 27. Ephesians 4, 6 says there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And then 1 Peter 1, 12 talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father. And though those are just three passages I've given you there, I could quote you 260 passages in the Bible that reference God as a father. I'd call that a pattern. 260 times the Bible tells us that the father is God and God is a father. But then, as many of us know, the Bible talks about the son, Jesus, and also references him as fully and completely as God. I mean, I know there's some offshoots of Christianity that disagree with this, like Jehovah Witness or Mormon or whatever, but I'm telling you folks, when I became a Christian 30 years ago, I didn't know if I believed this stuff, that Jesus is really God. When you look at the biblical evidence, it's overwhelming. 
I mean, John 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, meaning he eternally existed with God. And it's talking about Jesus. Hebrews 1, 8 then says, But of the Son, Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. And then Titus 2, verse 13, says that we are now, and I quote, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, those are just three examples of the Bible referring to Jesus as God. And as if this were not enough, when it then describes Jesus to us, it describes Jesus as God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, the creator, the sustainer, the forgiver of sins, and the judger of men. I don't know about you, but that sure sounds like it's describing God there. That's how the Bible describes Jesus. And then adding to all of this, you then have Jesus' own self-attestation of who he is. Uh, in John 10, verse, 20, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. He says in John 5, 17, that he and the Father have been working and are working until now. And the Jewish leaders didn't miss the point. They tried to kill him because, and I quote, he was making himself equal with God. And then you got that famous I am statement in John 8, 58, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And though that's lost on some people, it wasn't lost on his original audience. They knew that he was quoting Exodus chapter 3, where when Moses says to God, who is it that I should I tell him is sending me? God says, tell him that I am. I am is sending you. And Jesus here is referring to himself as the great I am. Again, the biblical evidence is clear. that The Son, Jesus, is God. He is the one God with all the fullness and attributes of God. And then the Bible describes the Spirit, and once again, you guessed it, it describes the Spirit as this one God. In Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, when Peter is confronting Ananias and Sapphira about their lying, he says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says, and I quote, you have not lied to men, but to God. Then in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then even again, like with Jesus, when we then see the Holy Spirit described and defined in both the Old and New Testament, you walk away with going, I think it's talking about God. The Holy Spirit is described as the creator in Genesis 1, as omnipresent in Psalm 139, as omnipotent in Job 33, as omniscient in 1 Corinthians 2, and as eternal in Hebrews chapter 9. I mean, I'm telling you, you can't walk away from an honest reading of the Bible and miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is described and defined as God. And then in the knockout punch, the Bible puts all of this together and in a few places describes all three persons of this trinity of God in one fell swoop. And so look up here on the screen at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Are you tracking this? You got Jesus at his baptism. 
the Holy Spirit descending on him, and then the Father breaking in, saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity in play here. In 1 Peter 1-2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 19, says that when you and I get baptized, we're to be baptized into what name? Do you remember? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Single name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 14, when it's wrapping up the whole book, it says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Please see, folks, we're not making this stuff up. I mean, some people actually think that a bunch of theologians sat around 1,800 years ago and decided to invent the Trinity to confuse us. I mean, nobody was more surprised at the Trinity of God than when the New Testament was complete than the early church fathers. They spent three centuries trying to figure out what this means and how it fits together. They tried to take the Mediterranean Sea of the vast nature of God and put it into their literal minds. The Bible affirms that this is who God is. This is our right understanding of him. He is a Trinitarian God in all of his beauty and mystery. And I know it's at this point in our discussion that there have been some, if not many over the years, who have said, but how can we understand this? I mean, how can I understand one being in three persons? How, How can I make any sense of this? And it's right at this point where we need to be very careful. I I don't know if you caught it, but I think Wayne Grudem says it best when the first thing out of his mouth was, you can't understand it. You can't fully understand it. And yet what Christians have tried to do over the years, and many of you have been exposed to this, is we've tried to come up with all these illustrations and analogies to explain the Trinity. You ever heard any of them? And so give me a click here. I, I, Tertullian, who was one of the original church fathers in the second century to actually coin the term Trinity, because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, just the concept of God being a Trinitarian God. Tertullian said that the Trinity is like a tree that has roots and then a trunk and then branches. So it's one tree with three parts. And that God the Father is the roots, and then the Son springs up from the Father and is the trunk, and then the branches and the fruit is the Holy Spirit, which, of course, the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives. And Tertullian said that's how you understand the Trinity. Or maybe you've heard the more contemporary example of of H2O, water. People have argued that water is one chemical substance, but it appears in three forms, liquid, steam, or ice. And so they say the Trinity is just like water, one God, one chemical substance, but with three different forms, water, steam, and ice, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or even people have said that the Trinity is like the President, the Vice President, and the Secretary of State. All human beings, so one kind of human being substance, but three different roles that the Trinity plays. You know, we have God as the president, Jesus as the VP, and then the Holy Spirit being the secretary of state, representing God throughout the whole world. Some people have used that analogy. And the analogies go on and on. I mean, in my research this week, I found that I'm getting even out of date. There's even newer analogies that I'm not up on. My favorite one was three-in-one shampoo. I kid you not. (laughs) 
I read that one this week. I don't know what Paul the Apostle would have thought of this, but, but they said that the Trinity is like pert shampoo, you know, where you got the shampoo and the conditioner and the other stuff all in one substance. That's the Trinity three-in-one shampoo. I got to tell you, it's no end to what we're going to do to try to describe God. Now, now listen very closely, folks. Though these illustrations can be somewhat helpful at a very elementary level, the problem with these illustrations is that once again we're trying to fit the Mediterranean into a child-sized hole that we have dug in the ground. And in so doing, what happens, and I'll show you this in a second here with these illustrations, is that sometimes we actually confuse the intricacy, the depth, and the beauty, and the mystery of the Trinity with these very simple analogies, and they can even lead to a misunderstanding of the biblical evidence that Bible scholars would call heretical, and none of us want to be heretics. And so the danger in these analogies is that it oversimplifies the beauty of God's declared nature and even misunderstands God's declared nature. What am I talking about? One of the great errors that some in the first three centuries of the church fell into was called modalism. You don't have to remember that name. You'll understand it in just a second here, but it was called modalism. And modalism tried to explain the Trinity this way. It said that really what's happening with the Trinity is that you have one God who is simply appearing or manifesting himself in one of three modes, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And so really the Trinity is best understood as one God who just appears differently at different times. So what modalism argued is that you have God the Father in the Old Testament, and then in the Gospels you have God the Son, Jesus, and then in the epistles and throughout the church age you have now God the Holy Spirit. But it's simply God appearing to be Father, appearing to be Son, and then appearing to be Spirit. Really, it's just one God. And though that sounds like a very attractive solution to you and I understanding the Trinity, the problem is, when you think about it, is that this idea ends up denying and distorting the fact that you have three distinct persons in the Trinity that Scripture makes so clear. In other words, the Scriptures don't say that God just appeared as a son they say he is eternally existent the son the god didn't just appear to be a father he is father as a person eternally so and god didn't just appear as a spirit he is spirit as a person eternally so do you see the difference there and though that might be subtle to some of you you're thinking big whip i mean the difference between manifestation and essence I would suggest to you that that's huge. I mean, think about that, that Bible passage we looked at just a minute ago where we saw Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending on Jesus, and then the Father breaking through with his words. Is that all appearances? Is that just God manifesting himself in certain ways? Or was there really a Father who was pleased with the Son and a Spirit who was descending on the Son that day in a special and unique way? Or how about when Jesus cried out to his Father on the cross? Is that just a mode? Or is there essence in that? Or how about when the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, says that when you're so hurting that you don't even know what to pray, he prays on your behalf? Is that actually a distinct person praying to another person, meaning the Spirit to the Father? Or is that just an appearance? Do you see the relevance of this? 
This, this is not just parsing little verbs. This is serious stuff. And the thing is, is that that H2O analogy, the water coming in three different forms, is like total modalism. I mean, we don't mean it to be. And I'm not saying you're messing up your first grader when you teach it in Sunday school. But the reality is when you use that as an adult explanation of the Trinity, quite frankly, you run great error at misunderstanding it. In fact, I had somebody in the first service come up to me and say, I've used that illustration for years, and now I realize I'm, I'm basically explaining modalism to somebody. I'm basically saying that God functions either as ice, either as, as steam, or either as a liquid. But we can't think of H2O functioning all three at the same time in one molecule, one substance. But that's God. That's the Trinity of God. It's a mystery. And we have to be careful with our analogies. Another error that the first century church combated was what we call Arianism. Again, you don't have to remember that, but you'll get the concept here in just two seconds. It was named after a 4th century church leader, Arius, who argued that God the Son was created, see how dangerous this is going to be, created by God the Father, and that the Spirit came after the Son. And though both the Son, are, both the Son and the Spirit are greater creations than all of creations, they are nonetheless created by God the Father. And as soon as Arius argued that, they asked him one question that now appears in the Nicene creed they said is he of the exact nature as the father or is he not equal with the father and Arius said he's not of the same nature because he was created by the father therefore he's not equal with the father Jesus is lesser and all of a sudden now you've denied the trinity you've protected the fact that there's one God you protected the fact that there are three persons so you're not a modalist but you've denied that all three persons are equally God. And that's the Arian, what we call the Arian heresy. And again, there are some analogies that we give that come so very close to Arianism today. I would argue that the president, vice president, secretary of state thing does that. Because who's the big cheese in that analogy? The president. Who, who does the president's bidding? The vice president. And, and, and who does the vice president the president's bidding? The secretary of state. So before you know it, you've declared a hierarchy there in your attempt to explain the Trinity, and though you don't mean to be an Arian about it, you are. You've just denigrated, downgraded, if you will, the Son of God's status by trying to explain something that's a mystery. Or the third error that people fall into is tritheism. This is the view that each person of the Trinity truly is God, but then they basically say, but then there can't really be one God, and now you're really in trouble. Because now you're denying half the Bible. And so maybe you can see why it's so important that we be careful with our analogies. They're well-intentioned. But a mature understanding of God's nature needs to incorporate all the aspects of who he is. And so maybe this will help. I, I was doing some research online this week and trying to figure out what other pastors are saying about the Trinity. And I ran into a ministry in Oklahoma called Credo House Ministries. It's a couple of Dallas seminary grads who have basically set up a coffee shop and they drink coffee all day and talk about and write about theology. And I thought, I want that job. I mean, what a great job. They don't pay me to do that here. I don't have the luxury just to drink coffee all day and think about theology. But I thought, if I ever get canned here, I'm going to Credo House. But anyways, these guys have put a chart up on their website that I found very helpful because they thought about this a lot. And, and they call it the Shield of the Trinity. And though it looks confusing to you there, it's really not. Just follow logic here. Start at the upper left. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So followed on the outside there, you have three separate persons that are distinct as persons. But 
The Father, follow it inside, is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And what these guys argue, and I think rightly so biblically, is that if you break any one of those chains, you're now in dangerous ground in your understanding of God and denying the Trinity. Keep all of those links together, and you're honoring the biblical data about who God is. It's just that it blows our mind. It's almost impossible to comprehend God that way. But I would suggest to you that that's the biblical understanding of God. I remember a professor of mine in seminary used to say that if you come up to me after class, after I've explained the Trinity, and you tell me that you understand it, you're probably a heretic. Because we don't understand it. We don't get it. Again, it's the Mediterranean into a little hole. And so I like how Ken Boa said it years ago. He said, the only way to avoid these extremes is to accept all the biblical facts in a broad way. He says the Trinity cannot be comprehended by the human mind because it is super rational. I looked up that word super rational this week in Webster's Dictionary. Interesting. It does not mean irrational. It doesn't even mean a contradiction in term. You can look it up yourself. The word super rational means above our rationality. It means above that which our rational minds can comprehend, but in another universe, or in this in this example, the economy of God, in God's mind, it makes total sense. 1 Corinthians 13 says that now we see through a glass dimly, then, meaning the other side, we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. And so you and I are not going to understand everything this side of heaven, and the Trinity is of that ilk. But as we're going to see in a second, we certainly can follow God as he has declared himself. And how he has declared himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, each fully God, but one being known as God. So the only question becomes then, what are we to do with this? But what should be our response to this biblical idea of God as a trinity? I love an illustration that Kevin Miller, a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois, gives. This is so cool. Look up here on the screen at this picture. He says, they tell me that deep within the core of the sun... The temperature is 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times what it is here on Earth. And in the sun's core, that insanely hot temperature and unthinkable pressure combine to create nuclear reactions. In each reaction, four protons fuse together to create one alpha particle, which is 0.7% less massive than the four protons. The difference in mass is expelled as energy, and after one million years, through a process called convection, this energy from the core of the sun finally reaches the surface where it's expelled as heat and light. Then he says, now all that was kind of interesting, but you know what? I didn't need to know all that in order to get a tan. <laughs> and I think in a very similar way, that's what you and I need to do with the Trinity. I mean, I've been studying this stuff for 30 years as a Christian, 20 years as a pastor. I, I have an earned master's degree in theology, and I've continued to read since then. And I can't understand, as Wayne Grudem said so well, how we can have one being in three persons, especially if those three persons are equally, fully, 100% God. I can't understand that. But what God says in his word is that that's who I am. Follow me, worship me, love me this way, and you'll get a spiritual tan. Or to put it even more clearly, the sun and the light of God's truth is shining upon you. Now don't miss this as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That's how he shines on you. And you do great justice to your own soul by recognizing him and following him as he has declared himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit, and one God. And so that's the thought I want to leave you with. It's my second and final point. We have just a few minutes to flesh this out, and that is that each person of the Trinity then functions specifically, and I would add powerfully, in our lives. It's really true. Though each person of the Trinity is fully and completely God, contained in one being God, they are nevertheless distinct persons And what the scriptures affirm to you and I, and this is very practical and life-giving, is that they each play a particular role in our redemption and our sanctification, which is just a fancy word for growth, as followers of Almighty God. Theologians call this the economics of the Trinity. Simply put, that there are some practical outpourings of how God has revealed himself to us, and when we live this and recognize this, it becomes a beautiful, if not functional, aspect to our walk with Almighty God. So what do we mean by this? I put up here on the screen just some examples of what the Bible says each person of the Trinity is in our lives, how each person in the Trinity postures himself toward us in our walk with Almighty God. So you notice there that I've suggested that the Father is the one who is sovereign and in control. Matthew chapter 11 says that not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Every hair on your head is numbered. The Father is the one who sent the Son. The Father is the one who is sovereign and sits on the throne. The Son is the one who is the Redeemer. He's the one who died on a wooden cross for your sins as your substitute. He is your forgiver. He calls himself your friend, and he's your advocate before Almighty God on behalf of your sin to be forgiven in his stead because of his death. And then the Spirit, if you've read the Bible, is the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one who gives us power through his gifting, who guides us, who, as we saw a couple weeks ago, enlightens our minds to understand the truth of God's Word. And so when you understand this, maybe now you can see that no matter what you're going through, God has postured himself toward you that he is available and for you. When you need to know that he is in control, he is your Father. When you mess up this week and you need to be reminded of your forgiveness, you look to Jesus. When you need power and strength to combat temptation, you rely on the Spirit. In other words, our faith is multifaceted and complex. It's in one God, but as he has revealed himself in his essence in three distinct persons. And you know, when I've taught like this over the years, people have said, well, Jamie, I mean, who do I pray to then? And you know, I I love that question. Because the answer is really not all that complicated. If you're in doubt, pray to God, okay? That'll just help you right there. So just pray to the one being God, and he will hear you. At the same time, one could make a strong biblical argument that it's okay to pray to all three persons of the Trinity differently at different times. I mean, the Lord's prayer is to who? Our Father who art in heaven. So we have an example of praying to the Father. When Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts, he prayed to Jesus. He said, Lord Jesus, unto you I give my spirit. And then though we don't have examples of people praying directly to the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 6 says that we're to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Romans 8 says the Spirit actually prays for us. And so many theologians like Augustine and Calvin have assumed then that, that there's, it's okay to talk to the Holy Spirit and pray to him. 
fact, John Calvin was known for that famous prayer that every time he walked up to the pulpit in Geneva 500 years ago, he'd be seen muttering to himself. And when people said, what are you muttering? He'd said, I'm saying, come, Holy Spirit, come. May my preaching be in power. And so do you see, God has shown you himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and we need to relate to him as such. Isn't that exciting? You know, people say to me at times, and I appreciate their honesty, you know, Jamie, I really like my Christian faith, but doctrine is just kind of boring. I think, what planet are you living on? I mean, I got saved 30 years ago, and ever since that moment, I'm in love with the things of God. I'm in love with his truth. I'm in love with him. And yeah, you got to put your thinking cap on. You got to wrestle some issues, and you got to stay tuned in with the, when the preacher's preaching, all that stuff. But it's well worth it. Because you come out the, under, out the other end having a cogent view of who God is and that will benefit you in your walk with him. Now, there's other implications of the Trinity. We have just a few minutes left, but there's volumes of stuff written on this. I, I, the other implication of the Trinity is that God, think about this, is self-contained in himself as three persons. So he's a community in himself. He finds joy in himself. He has relationality in himself, complete with humility and submission. The Father, the Son submitting to the Father, the Spirit doing what the Son tells. I mean, it's amazing what, what, the, what the, the, the Trinity reveals to you and I about life and relationships. In fact, Tim Keller in his book Reason for God does something very powerful. He actually makes the argument that without the Trinity, we have no basis for love. Isn't that interesting? We have no basis for love. And his argument is simply this, that love takes interaction. Love takes two people. And so without the Trinity, we have no eternal expression of love. Love could only come into being when God created things. But Christianity says, no, love existed way before God created anything. Love existed within the Trinity. And therefore, love is eternal. Listen to what he says. I like this. He says, if God is unipersonal, meaning not a trinity, then until God created other beings, there was no love, since love is something that one person has for another. This means that a unipersonal God was power, was sovereignty, was greatness from all of eternity, but not love. Love, then, is not in the essence of God, nor is it at the heart of the universe, only power. However, if God is triune, then loving relationships and community are the great fountain at the center of reality. When people say God is love, I think they mean that love is extremely important or that God really wants us to love. But in the Christian conception, God really has love as his essence. If he was just one person, he couldn't have been loving for all eternity. If he was only the impersonal all-soul of Eastern thought, he couldn't have been loving, for love is something persons do. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another, and that's the Trinity. And so here's the practical outpouring of that. This week when you love your spouse, this week when you do something sacrificial for your kid, this week when you are other-centered to somebody who bothers you at work, you're modeling the Trinity. You are loving somebody, but not just in some mamby-pamby country song kind of way. You are loving somebody based on the eternal trinity of God because love emanates from him. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that add meaning and expression to your faith? Doesn't that make you want to love a bit more? 
Doesn't that make you not want to get mad at the person who cuts you off in traffic? Or not to be impatient at somebody else? Not because it's the right thing to do, but because you want your life to be the Trinity. You want your life to become more like God's. And every time you love, you're patterning yourself after the Trinity of God. That's rich. That's what understanding God does in our lives. He loves you. He's revealed his love to you in Jesus Christ and by the giving of your Holy Spirit. And whether he ever created you or not, he is love. That's what John meant by God is love. And you can be love. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. It's real stuff. But we've tried to pour the Mediterranean into a little hole. And my guess is a lot of it has seeped out. You might even have some more questions. But don't ever forget, you don't need to understand all the internal workings of the sun to get a tan. You can get a tan just by following this God who has declared himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace and how you've seen fit in history past to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, I believe it's clear. It's just difficult to understand and comprehend. But Lord, it's right. When the finite looks on the infinite, we cannot help but get dizzy. And so God, I pray that as we uh, ponder on these things, hopefully as we apply them to our lives, even beginning today, that God, you might bless us greatly for understanding you rightly as you've revealed yourself to be. God, I thank you and I praise you because you are a Father, sovereign and in control. I thank you, Jesus, that you're my Redeemer, my friend, my advocate, my forgiver. And I thank you, Spirit, that you reveal and guide and convict and illuminate the truth to my mind and my heart. I thank you, God, that you are who you are and we love you. And we pray this only and always in the matchless name of Jesus. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.